Hello, everyone. I'm Isaiah Sullivan, and I'm very excited to be sharing my podcast, St. Small Talk, with all you listeners. My guest today is the Archbishop of the St. Paul, Minneapolis Archdiocese, Bernard Hebda, on this episode of St. Small Talk. Well, Archbishop, thanks again for coming on. Very excited to have you. I was doing some research on you before this, like a good podcaster would. I see that you're from Pittsburgh. Yes. So you, you went to Catholic grade school and high school, correct? I did. I went to Resurrection Grade School in uh, the Brookline neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And then I went to uh, South Catholic, which is a Christian Brothers High School, not unlike the Christian Brothers High Schools that we had here. Absolutely. The one that I went to, Creighton Durham Hall. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue the seminary? Because I don't believe you went right into it, correct? I did not. So I, I say it was something I thought about when I was a little kid. People always laugh because I said I either wanted to be a priest or a bus driver. It was going to be one or the other. (laughs) And it was at a time when we had, uh, you know, the bus driver would take money. And I thought that was all for him. And that seemed like he could just sit there and that everybody was giving him money. And I liked that. (laughs) That was was an appealing idea to you. That was an appealing idea. But I also had this sense. I, I loved being an altar server. I liked learning about God. And so I thought, well, maybe I will. Maybe the Lord wants me to be a priest. And so even as, as a really young kid, I thought about it. And then that was kind of a thought that stuck with me. I was in my neighborhood in Pittsburgh. We had a friary of, of Capuchin Franciscans. There are so many different kinds of flavors of Franciscans. And the, the Capuchins, they're, you know, they're a very strong community. They had a real good mission aspect to their, to their charism. Um, the Franciscans that lived in my neighborhood, the Capuchins, they had a mission in Papua New Guinea. Okay. So when they would come and preach at our parish, they would come for Advent and Christmas for confessions. They would preach occasionally. And they'd always tell stories about their work in Papua New Guinea and, and in inner city ministries, too. And it sounded real appealing. But they had uh, the good sense. They, they ran something called the Torch Club. I don't know that we could still do something like that now, but it's um, it was a program for kids like from fourth grade to eighth grade. And they'd get get us all together once a month and you'd play some sports. You'd watch a movie with some kind of a faith message and then you'd eat. <laughs> you'd have snack. <laughs> so it was a great and you'd meet kids from other parishes. So that uh, resurrection grade school that I mentioned to you was a pretty big grade school. We had sixteen hundred kids, so you figure eight hundred boys. For, for a grade school, that's humongous. For a grade school, it was huge. And that was the first small year. Oh, I really? started the year that they opened up two other schools in my neighborhood. But anyways, when we'd come together for the Torch Club, you'd get to meet kids from all the other schools too. And then they would run retreats for us in the summer. We would go on, once you got into sixth grade, you could go on Project Probe. It was just a, a week. Uh, they had a minor, they had a seminary outside of Pittsburgh, St. Fidelis. And you would go there, and it was a chance to, to pray, to learn how to pray. It was just when things were changing in the church a little bit, too. So it was like the first time I had heard guitars at Mass. Oh, really? You know, and there, there was one of the Capuchins played a, a, a bass. So that was kind of cool. I mean, not, but, not to date you at all, this is pretty well past Vatican II, correct? Yes, okay. absol- absolutely. Yeah. But it's not, it's not usually. I was born in 1959, right? So you have, as that was before things changed, and then... There was all this excitement in the, the late 60s and early early 70s. So sure. um, that would have been in, in that period. Huh? So I graduated grade school in 73. You went to Harvard, correct? I did. So you went to Harvard and you studied political science, as I've read. I, I did, absolutely. But I still was thinking, of, it was interesting that I was still thinking about being a Capuchin. When I was going into ninth grade, I had invited the priest, uh, Father Bill Weathorn, to come home with me to tell my parents that I wanted to go to St. Fidelis Minor Seminary. Really? They took Father Bill up to my room, which was a disaster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my mother said, if he can't clean his room, he can't go to seminary. So that was the end of that. Huh? When I was getting out of high school, I went to the Capuchins again. And I said, you know, my parents, I think, would be ready for this. You know, I'd, I'd, is there a chance I, I could do this? They talked to me about the other options that I had for schooling, and Harvard being one of them. Sure. And they you, said you had already gotten you, into, should, you had already gotten into Harvard at that point. Yes. And they said we think you should take that. <laughs> and they said, you know, they were having a little bit of difficulties, and that they thought that if the Lord was calling me to be a, a Capuchin Franciscan, 
that he'd still be calling me after college. So what was the what was the desire behind political science? Were the I mean, you say that you had this connection to the Capuchins. Were they a politically yeah. active uh, group in the Catholic Church? They were politically active, but I can tell you. So the actual degrees in it, it's at Harvard, it's called government. Okay. And there are different divisions within that degree. And the one that in- interested me the most was international relations. Mm-hmm. So it was that uh, I was really interested too at how it is we might be able to promote a world where, where peace was more prominent, right? Because it would have been the aftermath of the uh, Vietnam War. Sure. Still in the Cold and, War. Um, and it's still the, the Cold War, all of this stuff about nuclear destruction <laughs> as we're uh, the arms race. And so in my mind, it was I wanted to study international relations, particularly how we can promote peace. And I thought that was something that was very consistent with St. Francis, sure. you know, who was a great man of peace. Yeah. And then also with the Capuchins. But I, I can tell you, when I got to college, the last thing in the world I thought about was being a priest anymore. Oh, really? <laughs> I was I was blessed that they had a good Catholic student center at Harvard, really good chaplain, both a priest and a sister. And, and I became involved in that way. But I, I kept thinking there would be more useful things to do with my life than being a priest. And that's kind of what led me further and further into international relations. So when I when I graduated from Harvard, I didn't go back to the Capuchins to talk to them. No. But instead, I went to law school. <laughs> and I went to uh, Columbia, which had a really strong program in international law. I had never been to New York City before. Oh, really? and, but I knew that that's where the United Nations uh, was. And I thought, oh, there will be some great opportunities as a law student in New York. Especially at Columbia, such a prestigious university. Well, it was, you know, it was a great school for me. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to really be interested all that much in regular law, but I think I'll be really interested in international law. Any law school, everybody takes the same courses your first year, you know, uh, contracts and torts, uh, civil All the fun stuff, right? All the fun (laughs) stuff. None of the, none of the stuff that I wanted to study, but I was amazed that I actually really liked it. And so I, 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 was blessed. I got a job after my first year in law school with a law firm in Pittsburgh. And uh, I thought, you know, this could possibly work. I, I could be happy as a as a lawyer. I thought they were good people. I, I also was interested in like labor law as well. So I was at this firm called Reed Smith, which, is, which was the largest firm in Pittsburgh. It's now expanded e- even more. But I ended up, I, initially I thought, oh, I'll just, maybe I'll just do the first year of law school, take the courses that I like, and then quit. Yeah. <laughs> and it ended up being something that I liked. And as I said, I, I liked working uh, my first summer. So it sent me back to, to law school for the next two years. So I graduated law school in 1983. Interestingly enough, it was uh, while I was at law school that the idea of priesthood came back. Huh? So it had, and, it had kind um, of gone away during your college years at Harvard. And yeah. and but you found a resurgence in, in in law school. Where did that happen? So the interesting thing was that on the Columbia campus, the law school is very, very close to the university chapel. And one of the things I found out was that I could go to they had daily mass at whatever it was, 1205. I could finish my class at noon, get over to the chapel for mass. And it was a quick mass, <laughs> almost up to Father Malone's standards at Assumption here. Nearly, and just then, nearly. Um, I mean, he's, he's the best. And it was a, the priest was very much like Father Malone, always with a good homily. So I found myself going to mass every day again when I was in law school. And the nice thing was I was able to get back for lunch. And nobody even knew I had done anything. Huh? So I didn't have to tell anybody I was going to mass every day. Huh? So it was really in my third year of law school that I, and, and I was all excited to be going. I had a, a good job offer in Pittsburgh, and I would be going back there to that same firm. But I began to think more and more that maybe the Lord really was calling me to be a priest. But I, by that point, though, I was up to my my eyes in debt. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, and, and and so I knew I needed to work for a while. And so I thought, well, I'll work, and then I'll try to discern uh, priesthood a little bit more. And so. In my first year at uh, at the law firm, I tried going to mass as much as I could. It was they had there was a downtown parish in Pittsburgh, so I was able to you know go a lot either at lunchtime or after after work. And anyways, it did it it continued this thought that maybe the Lord wanted me to be a priest. And 
I, I liked what I was doing in the law firm, but I found that it was requiring more and more of my time. It was a real investment in a, in a good way as any young person does in a job, sure. you know? But I thought if I don't give seminary a try now, I'm never gonna do it because I'm gonna be all the more invested in a legal career. So I went finally to talk to the vocation director in Pittsburgh. He encouraged me to enter their pre-theology program. So after a year at the law firm, that's what, what I, I did. Archbishop, when you talk about a calling to the priesthood, yes. I know it's hard to describe what that is. Can you give us a, just a little bit of, of, of what it feels like, what, what a calling means? I mean, a lot of yeah. people feel called to do different things, but calls to the priesthood seems a little bit more divine, a little bit more. It's, it's obviously a very spiritual calling. How, how do you feel that? And, and how does it come about in your brain and in your heart? I don't know, Isaiah, if it's different than in other callings, huh? because I think all of us have to always be asking that question, Lord, what do you want me to do with this life that you've given to me? Huh? I think that's an important question for everybody. And, and when, we, when we ask the Lord to show us, he does. And in my case, the sense that I had, I mean, I never had, I was never knocked off a horse like St. Paul. Sure. I didn't have, you know, any kind of uh, voices that spoke to me saying, but I had this sense that the Lord wanted me to be his priest. And when I thought about it, even though I enjoyed the work I was doing as a lawyer, I had this sense that that would be where the Lord would really bless my efforts and where I would, you know, experience peace, huh? So that was really what I was just testing. And I thought, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and it really hasn't gone away after all those years. And so that was a little bit the, what led me then to, you know, to leave the law firm and to go uh, to pre-theology. But I wasn't sure by any means at that point. And if it didn't work out, I would have been happy to go <laughs> back to the law firm. And I tried not to burn too many bridges, you know, so that would have been a a possibility. But I, I went to uh, St. Paul's Seminary in Pittsburgh for pre-theology. There would have been probably another six guys, I think, that had all been working, doing, you know, one thing or another. And so it was just, that we were all, you know, a little bit older than the other seminarians. We supported each other. But I found that you have to study philosophy in pre-theology. Oh, yeah. Very familiar um, with philosophy, thanks to my grandfather. Yeah. So uh, but it scared me. But I found that it, uh, I didn't have the only philosophy course I'd ever taken was political philosophy, right? Sure. Because that, yeah. that went in with the government degree. So I, it ended up that the Lord seemed to open up doors. And I, I did okay in the, uh, studying philosophy. Actually, I, I did well. And I also liked life in the seminary. And, you know, obviously it's a little bit different when you're going from a, a law firm and you have a lot of freedom to uh, kind of being back in school in a more restrictive environment. It was something that I liked. I found I was able to pray more. And in the midst of all of that, I kept hearing in, inside this sense that, yeah, this is the Lord's. Uh, and I was asking, I said, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, you're going to have to you know, keep blessing my, my efforts here. <laughs> and so by the end of that year, I petitioned the bishop to send me on to theology, huh? So, which is, you know, the normal, the normal path. And interesting enough, at that point, my, my bishop was a lawyer too. So we were able to talk lawyer to lawyer. Huh? Sure. He initially assigned me to uh, the seminary in Chicago. We were going to be the first two students to go there from our diocese of Pittsburgh. And then almost at the last minute, he decides that he's going to send me to Rome. He had already uh, designated two students to go to Rome. And, and he said, decided to send a third. So I ended up going to seminary then in Rome. Oh, wow. I still wasn't 100% convinced I wanted to be a priest. <laughs> um, but it if, was a if great... There's a, if there's a place that's going to convince you, it'd probably be Rome. <laughs> one hope. One hope. Huh? I wasn't... Uh, it was really difficult at the beginning. I, I didn't know any Italian. Uh, and the program where we studied was all in Italian. And, <laughs> so how uh, fast did you have to learn? Well, I mean, you, you took like a crash course of three weeks, but I can tell you, I didn't understand a whole lot. I was be sitting there in the lectures with a dic my dictionary open, trying to figure out Jeez. what was being said. <laughs> One of my friends described a little bit as like dogs watching television, right? So <laughs> it, you, were, you were there, but you didn't, you didn't get it. And you, and you had to do a lot of the reading on your own. So I, I would find, you know, readings in English that would help me with that. But I, I certainly, by January though, I thought, 
I'm not picking this up. I really want to, I think I'd be better off in the United States. Oh, really? So I asked my vocation director if that would be a possibility. He said, no, he said, <laughs> go study, go study Italian in the summer. After my first year at, at the North American College in Rome, I spent one month in Lourdes in France uh, working there. And then I did uh, a month uh, course in Italian as well. And that really, really helped. And so when I got back for the second year of uh, theology, I was able to understand pretty much everything in class, which was great. Yeah, a lot easier than a dog watching television. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's the same thing where the Lord seemed to be blessing each thing that I did. And so I, I kept going forward. And by the end of seminary, I, I had a much stronger sense that indeed the Lord was calling me to be a priest. How many years were you in seminary in Rome specifically? So I was in Rome. Uh, I did four years before I was ordained. And then I did um, one year past that where I was in a program in canon law. So five years altogether at the seminary, but four of them as a seminarian, one of them as a priest. You know, I had left all, I thought I was leaving <laughs> law behind, right? Yeah, when I talked to my uh, bishop, you know, the uh, the bishop who was a lawyer, he said, oh yeah, you won't have to study law. But then in between, there was a change in bishops. Oh, really? When I talked to him, he said, look, you have a background in law. Uh, we need canon lawyers. You have to go to study canon law. I said, I, I left all that behind. He said, no, no, you have to do it. So it was, it was my first exercise in obedience. <laughs> so I did, uh, I studied uh, canon law. And the interesting thing was, Isaiah, is that at that point at the Gregorian University, the Jesuit University where I went, it was taught in Latin. Huh? Oh, so, so you I had did. gone through that experience of the dogs watching television in Italian. You know, then I got to do it, the dogs watching television in Latin. But it actually was a little bit better because... Nobody speaks Latin as a first language, no. right? One of the things is that the code of canon law, the church's laws are in, in Latin. So any sure. canonist needs to know Latin. You, normally you learn it in your own language. And then learn the Latin afterwards. Learn the Latin <laughs> afterwards, huh? But their principle was, no, you just learn it. You learn it in Latin. This way you have a greater facility in that language. And it's uh, the students come from all over the world. Yeah. So everybody's doing the same thing, you know? Can you give us a little, uh, for those that don't know what canon law is specifically, what, yes. it's the law of the Catholic Church, correct? Absolutely. So it's, and it looks at the, you know, all different kinds of laws. So every society has its own set of laws. And that, that's true for the church too. And so there are laws about what are the rights of individuals. There are rights, there are, uh, there are laws about property. There are laws about uh, criminal matters. The bishop who sent me, you know, at first I kind of complained and I said, oh, this is in Latin. This is hard. And and it's not. And he said, well, look, it's only one book. How hard can it be? Because it was the code of canon law is just one book. But it's actually you have to learn all this stuff about it, the background, the history. And there's actually a lot more to it than one book. You don't just get assigned different chapters throughout the year. You no. multiple books involved. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you have whole courses in each one of the. And they do call them books in the code of canon law, you know, but it was it was a decent experience. But I, I was anxious to do parish work. That was what I thought the Lord wanted me to do. When did you get your first parish? I thought I would get one right after I went home from Rome. And instead, the bishop made me his secretary. Oh. <laughs> so I, I did that as I was like his master of ceremonies and secretary, his driver, so I did that for two years, three months, and 10 days. Oh, that's a, it seems a little humbling that you know exactly the amount of time you were there. <laughs> well, my suspicion is that the bishop knows how many hours it was besides. <laughs> and uh, I was not the world's greatest secretary or master of ceremonies, but it was a wonderful way. And so I was really itching to get into a parish. And so I was asking, always hinting to the bishop that I'd like to do that. In the midst of my time in uh, working with him, he was reorganizing the parishes in Pittsburgh. I was talking to him one day about the parish that I had belonged to when I was a little boy. So before resurrection in Brookline, when I, before that, I lived in an area, I told you it was a lot like Northeast. Yeah. So in that neighborhood, they had seven Latin Rite Catholic churches and two Byzantine Latin, uh, Byzantine Catholic churches. So the bishop was bringing them together and, and they weren't so happy 
And I had gone, it was Holy Thursday. And one of the traditions from when I was a boy, boy, is that we would visit seven churches on Holy Thursday. Your family? So, yeah, I would do it with my family. Oh my gosh. Times. That time I, I got a late start. So uh, I was doing it. But as I went to those parishes in my old neighborhood, they were all, they were pretty angry that they were going to be merged. Oh, really? So I went to the bishop the next morning at breakfast and I said, this is going to be really difficult for you. You know, uh, two parishes were Polish. One was Slovak. One was uh, Lithuanian. Two were Germans. He said, you know, this is these people. They don't want to. They, they, they didn't get along back parish. in Europe and they're not going to get along here. <laughs> right. I guess he must have, uh, as he was thinking about it, he decided he would send me to that parish when he merged. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the nice thing was my um, my father's Polish. His family's Polish, you know, came from Poland. And my mother's family was Irish. They baptized me in the German parish. Okay. Uh, so we actually had, out of the seven Latin Rite parishes, we had three of them covered <laughs> just there. Huh? You're, you're already the, connected to three. I think the bishop decided that they wouldn't they wouldn't throw stones at me because I was related <laughs> to a lot of them, you know. So I ended up, that was my first parish then. And, and the bishop had a little bit of a sense of humor because it was going to be a hotbed. He called it Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace Parish. And uh, they sued all the way up to the Supreme Court in the United States what? and all the way up to the Supreme Court at the Vatican to prevent this merger. Huh? Oh, my God. So it was a little bit of a tense spot, but it was also a lot of fun. And it was a neighborhood not unlike Northeast, too, because it was going through some uh, revitalization. There were young people moving there. You know, it, historically, it had been all... Uh, older European immigrants huh? okay, and uh, in those nationalities that I was talking about. And then all of a sudden you had, you know, the first, the first coffee shop in Pittsburgh opened up on Carson street and on the South side of Pittsburgh in this neighborhood. And that was the beginning of, of a change. Huh? So, but so. your first job was to kind of unite nine parishes that wanted so badly to be left alone, they were willing to sue to the Supreme yeah. Court? It was actually, we, I only had to deal with seven of them. The two oh, okay. Eastern right ones, I didn't, that wasn't us. So, <laughs> Lucky um, you, only seven. <laughs> only seven. Yeah, so, and they, they closed three of the churches right at the get-go. But we had, so we had four church buildings. I think we had seven cemeteries. So it was, I mean, it was just huge. The number of buildings that we had was phenomenal. So just helping them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus, right? Because that's that's what we all have in common. And, but we tried keeping up their traditions as well. And so one of the churches was designated for Polish traditions. One was designated for Slovak traditions. So we'd have mass, you know, the music would be in a different language or uh, would do, you know, different things at, at Lent and Advent. And we, it, was, it was, that part of it was fun for me. And then trying to deal with all of these, you know, kind of like old world parishioners with all of the, you know, college students that were moving into the neighborhood as well. Huh? Gotcha. So, so you were there for how long then? Archbishop? I, I was there for about three years. So how, so you're there for three years. Um, do you move to another parish or when do you first get appointed as a bishop? Yeah. So no, it's a little bit of a trek. So after um, I was in, at that Prince of Peace parish, the bishop named me the chaplain at a Newman Center at Slippery Rock University. Huh? It was out about an hour and 15 minutes north of Pittsburgh, out in the middle of nowhere. But it was it was a great experience. We had just about 10,000 students. A good chunk of them would have been Catholic, but most of them would have gone. It was a commuter school a lot, so there weren't all that many people there on weekends. So we had the biggest... Uh, mass was we did mass at 10 o'clock at night on Sunday night. You know, when everybody's coming, coming back. Yeah. Gotcha. So that was, I think it was 10 or it might've been nine, but it was late. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was a wonderful experience. I thought, Oh, I'd love to do this for the rest of my life. And I, after I was there for about a year, I was sent to, to work in Rome at the Vatican. <laughs> oh, so you're so sent I, back to Rome. Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting because the Vatican was looking for an American priest who had a degree in canon law and who also had a degree in American civil law. And it so, preferably spoke Italian, which you yes, fit all exactly. of them. <laughs> exactly. So uh, my Italian wasn't great at that point, but I kind of fit the bill. And so I always laughed that my bishop sold me like a cow. You know, <laughs> that he said, yeah, fine. I, I didn't really want to go. And he said, if you don't like it, I'll get you out of it after a year. 
So I, I went and, you know, you, I, I love Paris work. I love the work with college students. It's very pastoral. Yeah. And, and, and then I found myself in an office in a, in, you know, in the Vatican. And what um, kind of work were you doing there? It was legal work. At a, oh. It was a office called the Pontifical Council for the interpretation of legislative texts. That was initially <laughs> what the, they, they shortened the name eventually. But what it did, if you can imagine when you took a civics class, uh, Isaiah, you remember that we talk about the executive, the legislative and the judicial branches of government. Yes, sir. Well, in the church, it's all the, the Pope is the legislator. Really? The, one brand. <laughs> the Pope is the chief judge, you know, but he has, he has an office that helps him with legislation. And that's the office that, that I worked in. And did you so, like your work there? I, you know what? I hated it at first, <laughs> but especially because, you know, my Italian wasn't, my Italian was, was okay, but it's, it's a very technical Italian to be able to deal sure. with laws and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I missed working with college students. And, and so at the end of that year, I went to my bishop and I said, Bishop, you promised me if I didn't like it that I could come home. I'd like to come home. And he said, well, tell them that you're having uh, emotional illness problems. Okay. And I, I said, I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> you know, well, well, then you have to stay. It'll be five years. But anyways, I ended up working there for 13 years. Oh, my wow. gosh. It was. It, it, so eventually it you found being, you found a like for it eventually. I, I did, huh? But, I, you know, to, to make it palatable at first. I had to find some pastoral outlet as well. So I was asked to be a, a, an adjunct spiritual director at the North American College Seminary where I had gone. So that was wonderful. And then Mother Teresa's sisters always, always are looking for priests to celebrate mass and sacraments in English. Oh, really? So I ended up getting very involved with missionaries of charity, her, her community. Oh, that's wonderful. So be, between doing that work with the sisters and doing the work at the seminary, you know, that, that kind of addressed the, the need for pastoral work that I had. And, and the other work became more interesting in my mind. Yeah. So it, it ended up being, um, it ended up being a great, great, great time. I, after 13 years, I was ready to go, go home. Yeah. So you came, and, um, you came back to Pittsburgh or you came to, to where in the United States? Well, I, yeah. So that was the thing. My parents by that point had moved to Florida. My mother had been sick. My brothers and my sister, my brothers lived in Florida. They were going back and forth to Pittsburgh to help take care of my mother. My sister was in Maryland at the time. And uh, they said, this can't work. So they convinced my parents to move to Florida. Nice. So when that's, I was- that's a, my, that's a great Jerry Seinfeld line, which is my parents, they're, they live in Florida now. They didn't want to, but they turned 70 and that's the law. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was not so different than that. My mom wanted to go, at least she said said she did, and my father went kicking and screaming. Oh, I'm sure. And then he ended up loving it. So when they, you know, my mom was still sick, and and so I began to ask if I could go home from Rome, and I I would I said I'd like to go uh, for a while at least to work in Florida until my mom passed, huh? Sure. And um, so I was working with the my bishop in Pittsburgh. And working with the bishop in Florida, who was a friend of mine, to try to find a parish. But it was taking longer than I expected. And, and in my mind, Isaiah, I kind of pictured being a pastor of a parish with palm trees at the beach. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and there, there are some of them, huh? That's, and, a, that's a pretty um, sweet gig, I would suppose. It, it was it, it's nice. It has its own challenges. But eventually, nothing was coming. And so I said, Lord, I'll take a parish, even if it's not at the beach. Even if it's east of I-75, that was my, and which is the, the, the highway that goes right through Sarasota, Florida, north to south, you know, through Florida, uh, where my parents live. And I saw even if it's east of I-75. So one day I'm in, I'm in my office in Rome and I get a call from the Congregation for Bishops, which is the office two stories down from us, two floors down from us in the same building, the same palace. And they said, we need you to come down. So I went down with my yellow legal tablet. I did work with them all the time. So I just figured it was for, um, you know, something, so something law something related. Work, yeah. right? So very, and I go in there and there's the Cardinal sitting there and uh, he has a map of the United States on the, that's the only thing he has, no books, nothing, just on the desk. There's the map of the United States and he points his finger and says, the Holy Father has named you to be the Bishop of Gaylord in Michigan. 
Wow. <laughs> I said, your, your eminence, you have to have, have made some mistake here. I've, I've never been to Gaylord in Michigan. I don't know anything about Gaylord in Michigan. I don't think the Lord's calling me to be a bishop. <laughs> and he said, the Holy Father has already named you to be the Bishop of Gaylord in Michigan. He said, you'll be close to your mother. You'll be happy. So at that point, I took, I took the map and I showed him where Florida was, right? Where <laughs> yeah. Sarasota, Florida was. He said, well, you know, it's, it's not so bad. He said, I said, I, I don't know if I can say yes to this. He yeah. said, well, come back on Monday, write a letter to the Holy Father telling him how happy you are to be the Bishop in Gaylord. <laughs> Is that- and we'll have a chance to talk. So I, I ended up going back and prayed for the weekend. And, but I did show him. I said, you know, the distance between Gaylord and mm. Sarasota, Florida, <laughs> where my mother lives, is the distance between Rome and Copenhagen. Would you send a priest from Rome to Copenhagen? And, no, of course I wouldn't. He said, but it's all the same country. It's all You'll the be same happy. Country. So I ended up going to Gaylord for the announcement on October the 7th, 2009. It's, you know, everything's hush-hush. It's a secret. So I, I'm driving in uh, from the airport. I've never been there before. I'm driving uh, from the airport in uh, Traverse City, and uh, to Gaylord. And we had already been diverted because of winds. So we actually had to land in Saginaw and then come back. Anyways, I was late, it was dark. And I get right by the cathedral in Gaylord and I realize it's immediately east of I-75. I told the Lord I had cut this deal with him. I'll go even if it's east of I-75. Yeah, you you didn't stipulate the north-south proportion. That was my mistake. You would think I would know better as a lawyer, right? You had to be very careful on your language there. But if I had a good arm, I could have thrown a stone from uh, the cathedral to I-75. That's that's pretty poetic. So so if I were driving to see my, my parents, I would only have to make two turns. Right? <laughs> so I was, I was in Gaylord for three years and I thought, you know, all along, I had never been lived outside of a city, you know? So what's it like in Gaylord? Is it, is it more rural or suburban or? Yes. It's uh, potato farmers. Oh, there, there are only 3,600 people that live in Gaylord. Oh, wow. Wow. In, in the, in the, in the city of Gaylord, it's a kind of a, a little bit of a hub for the County. It's there, so there are some stores, and but it's it's pretty small. And I had always been in an urban area, you know. I lived in very urban part of Pittsburgh, then I lived in Boston, I lived in New York, I lived in Rome, which is chaos. <laughs> and then I was being sent to Gaylord with thirty six hundred people. I didn't know anything about farming, and I didn't know anything. It ended up being just a wonderful experience because there maybe sixty five thousand Catholics in the diocese. Some way, I mean, there are parishes in Rome with 65,000 Catholics. Oh, wow. And uh, I mean, you're just these huge. And uh, and so it was a nice way to be a pastor of sorts for those people. And, and they would relate to me as they would relate to a pastor. And so it was, a, it was a really beautiful experience. And I had that same prayer with the Lord that I had when I was at the Newman Center in Slippery Rock. Lord, I'd love to stay here for the rest of my life. Huh? Yeah. And yet there was a, a labor day where I picked up the phone. I shouldn't have, I was in the office. I picked up the phone <laughs> and it was the nuncio. So he called me and he said, you'll be happy to know that the Holy Father has transferred you to become the coadjutor archbishop in Newark, New Jersey. Ah. Okay. And I was just finishing up uh, my draft on my very first pastoral letter. Oh, yeah. I had done some pastoral planning. Everything was there. I literally had just finished the draft and I pick up the phone and I'm told I'm leaving. I couldn't help but laugh because there couldn't be two places more different Newark. Yeah. than Taylor <laughs> and Newark. Huh? Yeah. You had Midwest so, all the way to East Coast, very large. But Newark only had you know four counties. Everything was uh, you know, everything was urban. The whole place was urban or suburban. No rural areas. You know, Gaylord was was pretty um, homogeneous. I think I knew every non-Caucasian, not only non, <laughs> not only Catholics who weren't Caucasian, but yeah. I think just people that lived in the area, right? And then you go to Newark, where it's just a you know huge melting pot, yeah. and people from all a lot of immigrants, people from all over the world. It was just you know very very in, intense. One one and, side of the spectrum to the other immediately. Right. So I, I can't remember the statistics. And I think Newark was 20, the population was 20 times greater than that of the Diocese of Gaylord. 
and the territory was one fifteenth the size. A lot more dense. A lot more dense. <laughs> so how long were you there until you moved to the Twin Cities? So I was in I was in Newark altogether for three years, almost three years. And but midway through that, the Holy Father named me the administrator of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. So I, I came here, I was going back and forth every week from Newark to here. I, oh, really? I was I was the coadjutor archbishop there. So they figured, I guess they figured I was disposable, right? Because I was just <laughs> waiting for the archbishop to retire. So I was his de- designated successor. Gotcha. Uh, but I was still waiting for him to turn 75. So, so, you were, thought, so you were at that point expected to become the archbishop of the Newark Archdiocese. Yes. Right. Okay. So that's what a co- coadjutor is. It was in June. I was named the administrator of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis. And it would have been the following July that the Archbishop of Newark was turning 75. So I would have been the Archbishop at that point. So sure. I had a year. And I was going back and forth, you know, because I had commitments uh, in Newark still. And I did that for about nine months when I was named uh, unexpectedly the Archbishop here. Was that, so that came as a surprise to you when that happened? A huge, huge surprise. And, you know, the idea, especially because by that point, that was March, and I was supposed to be the Archbishop in Newark in July. <laughs> so I was actually installed here in May, so that was even closer to when I would have been. So it's uh, it, it's a lot of surprises, sure. and I had, I had grown to like Newark a lot, too. And, uh, and I had some friends who lived in Newark, be- had known before I arrived there, so it was an easy fit. And... Uh, what, what year was that when you were named Archbishop of the Twin Cities? I w- it was named in 2016. Okay. So yeah. obviously during that time, the Archdiocese was going through a lot, right? Right. Yeah, we were, we, I mean, there was a lot of controversy and a lot of stuff going on. Did you feel the weight of that as the Archbishop? I, I, I did. So, I, you know, I, I came in June 2015. The Archdiocese had entered into... Uh, bankruptcy petition for bankruptcy yeah. in January. So before I got here, and then uh, the archbishop and one of the auxiliary bishops had resigned in June, and that's right when I was I was named to come as administrator. And what had kind of occasioned that, I think, was that there had been charges filed against the archdiocese yeah. by uh, the Ramsey County Attorney's Office. Okay. So we had not only the bankruptcy, but then also these criminal and civil charges. And so it was a little bit of a mess. So as part of that, your appointment, due to the fact that you were not only a canon lawyer, but also had a, a law degree? I'm sure that to, in some, yeah. somebody, when they're looking at that, they're thinking, oh, yeah, send him. <laughs> Plus, he, you know, I think they figured I was uh, expendable in Newark, right, that the yeah, archbishop sure. could keep things going. I had only been here once before. I got, I was um, stranded in the airport. <laughs> MSP, and I had to uh, spend an overnight in uh, Bloomington, at a, but that was it. I went to Mall of America. That was all I had seen. <laughs> so I didn't know anything about here, and it was, it was God was good to me in that way because I had those months as an administrator to kind of learn the diocese, and so when I was named, I already knew that it was a diocese I could love. While I was administrator, we decided to do these listening sessions to kind of help the Pope figure out what kind of bishop he needed to send here. So I obviously failed because they sent me. <laughs> yeah. you know, we had, you know, we convoked and I was amazed how many people came talking about what were the strengths of the diocese, what were the challenges, what was the kind of leader that they uh, were hoping for. But in doing that, and we scheduled them ar- around the archdiocese. So I, I got a chance to uh, you know experience different parishes you know, different parts of the archdiocese here, the rural parts, the suburban, the urban. And uh, so it was a, a great way to kind of get ready to be the the archbishop. It was a time when I think a lot of Catholics had a wavering faith. I was pretty young at the time, but I but I noticed in a lot of friends and friends' parents at the time because, you know, we had this uh, the controversy of childhood sexual abuse kind of, it seemed like in a lot of areas of the archdiocese. And it was it was tough uh, for a lot of people to reconcile their faith with that, and I'm sure yes. you 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 felt that with the parishioners. Um, I, I'm kind of wondering, you know, for Catholics, is there a way, or I know it's not a perfect answer or anything like that, but ways to reconcile that part of it of an 
of an institution with the actual faith that you have in God and Jesus. I, mean, I, I think that's the key point there, though, Isaiah, right? It, keeping our eyes on Jesus, we, we recognize that our all of us are weak sinners. Huh? We can do amazing, yeah. amazingly s- silly and wrong things, and um, but that shouldn't shake our, our faith in in God or, or in his church. And, but that's, that's certainly the challenge of, you know, especially when it, it comes to the abuse crisis, you think, how could that, you, you wonder about how anybody could ever abuse a child. Yeah. And it's, it's magnified when it's somebody that you trust as your priest. And so that, that's been a real moment of soul searching, not just here in the twin cities, but really around the world as we kind of grapple with the fact that there are priests that did these things and bishops who did those things or, bishops who covered up. And so, um, you know, really, that the especially in the last 20 years, the church has spent a lot of energy trying to change that. So having greater transparency, making sure that people are held accountable. You know, it doesn't, obviously, the, the vast majority of priests and bishops are, are really great and holy men who would never do anything like that. But at the same time, you have to be able to try to figure out how do we make sure that doesn't happen again. You know, you were asking about when I got here, things were a little bit challenging. One of the things that we learned is that how important it is that we rely on the lay faithful to really help us with, with those things. So here, even before I got here, they had put together a great team, really helped the Archdiocese with child protection, uh, both going forward and then also going through all of the files and things to figure out what had happened in the past. But just in general, that's been, I think, a, uh, a real blessing for me is that here in the Archdiocese, there are really talented lay people who are committed to the church, uh, who really want the church to succeed, who, who want there to be that kind of transparency and accountability that can make a difference. And we actually, actually I think, ended up collaborating in a good way with the Ramsey County Attorney's Office, even when People might not have trusted me or trusted the diocese. They trust uh, John Choi, our Our county county attorney. attorney, And so when he's able to say the archdiocese is doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, that this is the uh, safe diocese, uh, that that went a long way. So I think we're in a better position. We always have to be vigilant. We always have to make sure that uh, we don't let down our guard, uh, whether it be with uh, priests or sisters or volunteers or employees, right? So that's always going to be part of what we do going forward is an assuring safe environment. But at the same time, I think we're in a much, much better spot uh, now than we were uh, then. Absolutely. And how, I appreciate your candor on that. How big is the archdiocese? Like what is what are the physical boundaries of so your diocese? We have 12 counties. So it's not really all that big either. The furthest away from St. Paul would be about an hour and 15 minutes. Okay. Gotcha. Right, so yeah. it's not that it's not that far, but still, it, it probably encompasses uh, around three million people, right? It's a far cry from Gaylord. Yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. We'd have, I think, we tell the Holy Father we have between seven hundred and fifteen, eight hundred thousand Catholics. Wow. Okay. You know, we look at what the what how people identify themselves, like for a census, or we look to see how many baptisms there are, how many funerals, trying to keep track of those things. So. It's a it's a it's a good size uh, archdiocese for sure. Being a, I'm in college right now. I'm a junior at the University of Minnesota. I go to the Newman Center, uh, led by Father Jake Anderson, which is uh, yes. a, a, a wonderful priest and a very nice man. Uh, and so I go to a obviously a secular college, and a lot of my friends are secular, non Catholics. But a lot of my friends from grade school and high school are Catholics that have kind of strayed away from the faith or don't go to church as often. There seems to be a divide there where a lot of people who go to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, and were raised Catholic, they go to college and they stop attending mass. They stop praying as often and, and going through the rituals. And I'm wondering, what do you see as, the, as, as, a, as a major cause of that? Why does it seem like a lot of teenagers and people in their early 20s tend to, tend to stray away from the faith as soon as they get the chance? So St. Mary's University, based in Winona, they did a great study of young people. And what they found is that Many young people actually make the decision to leave the church when they're 13. That's the that's the really? key age. But between 13 and 18, they go to mass because their parents make them do it. Sure. But they make that that kind of a decision at that point. Sometimes they'll say, 
And then when they try to look at the reasons for that, you know, you would think maybe it would be something like the abuse crisis, and that's not so much the case. Uh, but when, you know, they, they somehow or other get convinced that there's a conflict between faith and science. That's sure. one of the, the difficulties for, uh, for young people, or they look at some of the moral teachings of the church, and they don't find them convincing. And so they make that kind of a decision that early. So you know, we certainly realize that the the work that we're doing has to target also our young people so that we put a lot of attention to our Catholic schools so that they're really teaching the faith and helping kids to think, but we in, in, in really helping to form their minds, recognizing that there are kids that are would be uh, looking at those kinds of issues even at a at a younger age. Huh? And then, you know, so our support for Catholic grade schools, support for Catholic high schools, and then you know, youth ministry, and then ministry to young adults. We ha- you always have that chance, especially at the university time. So you, you know that's a time where you, as you mentioned, you see so many people drifting, but it's also a wonderful time to get people engaged too. Yeah. So it's a time where people, you know, the, the young people are really trying to think about about what does life mean, uh, what do they what do they believe. And if the church is willing to enter into that dialogue with them, that can, that can go a long way. So I, I, I love, for example, I, I told you I had worked at uh, Slippery Rock University. That's right. In some ways, for me, that was the most exciting ministry because you're working with young people who, who are very honest, too, about their questions. But you have to be willing to address them head on. And, and give them that opportunity. But when, when they come to uh, to believe, they're amazingly strong. You know, I, I love going for liturgy at St. Lawrence, no. you know, right right by the U. Or, we had you for the, uh, when Newman was canonized, correct, as a that's saint? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh. So that was great. But, I mean, there's a real energy there, too. So for, for when you get university students who believe, there's, there's nothing better than that. Huh? And that has an impact then on how they how they go about their lives, who, who do they choose for spouses, how do they raise their kids. That, it's a, a really important time that the church needs to be attentive to, you know, and Pope Francis recognizes that too. So the last, they did a synod for young adult, youth and young adults, you know, all over the world. And that has to be an, a, a real area of emphasis for us is how do we engage uh, young people in the faith? Obviously, going to a secular school, a lot of the people that I associate myself have a lot more liberal and progressive beliefs. And there yes. seems to be a conception that that is in contradiction with the Catholic faith in a lot of regards in terms of same-sex marriage and uh, well, sexual orientation in general, along with abortion and things like that. Is there a way for people who hold those beliefs, let's just say uh, uh, someone who believes that they're, they're pro-same-sex unions, and their pro-choice, is is there still a home for them in the Catholic Church? Are they still able to, uh, what, what does the church teach in that respect? I, I'm unaware of it. So we want everybody in the church. We want all, yeah. we want everybody there, but we want them also there seeking the truth, right? The church's point isn't to exclude people from the church, but rather to help convince them about the truth of what we teach. So, you know, you, you mentioned abortion, you mentioned same-sex marriage. Those same kinds of studies, like on the on the question of abortion, we know that among young people in general, not just young Catholics, there's an increasing awareness of life. And yeah. people that are, when, when they look at those questions, you go for the March for Life, it's young people. You you look for people that are, they, they rec- obviously there are, there's people make difficult choices and those things, but by and large, they're able to say, that's a life and it's wrong to take that life. So on the abortion issue with young people, we're doing amazingly well. Especially, same, yeah, especially young Catholics, I see young, that. Yeah, Young Catholics, but not just, right? So here, for example, we get a lot of our, like those come from evangelical traditions. They're as passionate about that as we are. But even people that have no faith at all are still registering that they recognize, you know, you, you see an ultrasound of, yeah. of a of a baby at just a few, a few weeks, and people are able to say, that's a person, we shouldn't be taking that life. So on the life issue, there's there's an amazing... Support on all sides. Yep. We have a much more difficult time with same-sex marriage, because uh, 
many people, uh, I think, are formed, they see it as discrimination, much as like racial discrimination. But there's not a real sense of what, what does the church teach about marriage? So it's it's our fault a little bit in not being able to, to teach more deeply about what we believe, about why God created us. And so it's easy when people don't have all of those, all of that background, that foundation, it's easy for them to think that the church is being bigoted or prejudiced or discriminating. And, you know, our, our point is we, we want all people to be, feel welcome in, in our church. We also want to teach them, though, about everything that uh, Jesus has passed on to his church and has been passed on through the centuries. But we have to make sure that we're not being judgmental or that we're not being harsh, uh, but rather that we're trying to approach people with the same kind of openness that Jesus did. Huh? Do you see that burden fall on the church in terms of showing people the universality of it instead of people having to seek out where, where the universality comes from? Yeah, so, I mean, I think the we need, church needs to do a much better job of being able to, to teach huh? and, and finding the ways of, of doing that. So, and I, I'm always in for example, Isaiah, about your work as a, doing a podcast. You know, when yeah. I, we have we have all kinds of young Catholics that are doing podcasts on Catholic themes, right? Yeah. And uh, and that's a way of being able to communicate to a different audience about Catholic teaching. So sure. uh, even you know here in the Archdiocese, we would have a number of those kinds of podcasts. But but how is it that we're able to teach? In a, in a way that helps people to understand more broadly so they don't see us just as as bigots or yeah but rather that they see that there's some principle that's there and that there's a, a a beauty in the teaching too even when it's challenging yeah that makes it makes a lot of sense when it comes to young people myself included kind of going back to this idea that we were talking about with young people questioning faith I didn't know that statistic at age 13 that's very fascinating that's what yeah. a lot of people decide but hard for everybody to maintain faith all the time you know, right. especially young people who go to college, it's their first exposure a lot of the times to uh, a whole host of things, being on their own, and that leads into a million other things. They're able to make their own decisions, be more autonomous, and they kind of allow their faith and they question it more, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But but what do you have to say to those people who are questioning and are finding a lot of doubt in faith, uh, especially yes. when they're young? You know, we have in the sacred scriptures, we have the example of Thomas, who even though he has the greatest proclamation of faith, my Lord and my God, he's remembered 2,000 years later, he's doubting Thomas. Yeah. But it's out of his doubt and his desire to resolve the doubt that he comes to great faith. And so we, we can never, as a church, we can never, we have to recognize that people are going to doubt. We don't see that. In a, we, most people, when they look in their own hearts, they can see areas where they need greater faith or where there's been doubt. And so for us to be able to recognize that that's there and to be willing to engage in, in, in an effective way of helping people to resolve those doubts. Huh? You think, that, so, so can doubt almost be a good thing at times or questioning at least? That's what I would say, right? So if you look at Thomas, it was because of his doubt that he goes to deep faith. Huh? I think we just have to be ready to really engage people in those in those ways. And so whether it be the Newman Center at, at the U or whether it be the um, Anselm House, which is not a Catholic uh, institution, but just in terms of, of faith, also at the U, those kind of things where people can come and speak about their doubts, speak about, you know, what are those areas that they'd like to have greater enlightenment on. And uh, it's out of those discussions that we bring people to, to faith. And so we certainly hope that that's the case. But a lot of the statistics on millennials in general, you know, they talk about they're looking for experiences that are authentic. They're looking for experiences that are going to have a community element and experiences where they're going to be able to make a difference in the world. I would say that the church offers something to each of those needs, right? I think if we begin from the proposition that what we have is life-giving, huh? we want to be able to share that with people and help them to see that. I was listening to the radio yesterday, and there was a, a, a I think it was a general in the military, and he was talking about resilience huh? and uh, based a little bit on his experience in the, in the military. Who, what, makes, how, what makes a soldier resilient? Huh? But one of the things that he said is that 
faith makes a real difference there. So the, when they do their studies, they see that somebody with faith is able to deal with challenges in a, in a, from a greater position of strength. Is that faith in I all mean, respects, not just Christianity? Faith, or faith Catholicism? in all respects. Gotcha. Right? So that's all, he's talking about it from their secular studies, but that faith is something that makes us stronger. And so why wouldn't we want to make sure that our young people, you know, come to see that too? And what young person who's looking for, how do I find happiness in life? How do I find meaning in life? That if we have something that, that we think is going to help them to be more resilient or is going to give them a prism for looking at the world that that makes some sense out of out of suffering or makes some sense out of the call to help others. I think we have something to add to that. And so I'm not I, I think there's great, great hope that's there. You know? Do you uh I mean, I know this is a big question, especially because you are the archbishop, but do you ever find yourself questioning in doubt? Is that is that something that you've that can be overcome eventually when you are so certain in faith, or is it something that always continues on throughout your well, faith no, journey? I, I think that there, I think there's always going to be those temptations. I think it's very very normal, and it's a question then of being how it is that you're docile, so you want to learn. So you know, one of the great lines in the uh, in the Gospels is, "Lord, heal heal my unbelief." Right, and so whether you be the Pope or the Archbishop or Isaiah on the podcast, that, and that's our humble prayer: is Lord, help, help me, help me to believe. I think to to grapple with those things is just it, it helps us to understand, and it also gives us. I think when we're willing to recognize where doubt might come into our lives, it makes us then have greater empathy for those who are doubting themselves and want to be with them as they try to resolve those doubts. And going back, you said something earlier about youth and community and how it can be a very, it can be very strong. And we've obviously yes. felt kind of a dagger in community with COVID. It's been hard to meet. We we're, we didn't have in-person mass for a very long time, but you, you decided in the summer to allow for in-person mass safely done against the governor's orders. And I was wondering if you can speak a little bit on on your decision there and 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 what your thought process was and and why you made that decision. Uh, our point is that for us as Catholics, the Eucharist is so foundational, right? Absolutely, it's not the same. Even though I'm so happy that our parishes are are live streaming the liturgy for people that can't come, that it's not the same experience, right? For us, it's so important that people come and that they're nourished by the Eucharist, and so. We wanted to make sure that we would do that to the extent that it's it was safe to do it. And we were we were confident. We had great uh, experts who had looked at the of how it is that we'd be able to bring people together safely. So obviously there are some things, you know, we're asking people to wear masks, we're we're not singing at mass, you know, we're we're sitting, yeah. you know, a couple rows apart, those kinds of things. But at the same time, it it still gives us that opportunity to come together as a community. And to be around the Eucharist and to be nourished by that as we go forth and to serve, especially in the middle of a pandemic. You know, I, I was really strengthened by the number of Catholic doctors and nurses who said, we need the Eucharist <laughs> if we're going to be able to go in, into this uh, really bleak situation yeah. and serve well. We need we need to know of the Lord's presence. It looks like you're in your office right now on the east side of St. Paul, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, we had we had Councilwoman Jane Prince on just a little bit ago, and she I mentioned oh. that you were coming on, and she was very excited. She said how how happy they are to have you over on the east side. Well, she does a great job over here. I, I, I we run into each other periodically. Sure. And it's it's a really it's a vibrant neighborhood, but it, this is one of those you know, melting pot neighborhoods too, where you have every time I stop at the gas station, I realize I think I'm the only person born in the United States here. Yeah, so, and that's I mean that's a. Pot. That's kind of a beautiful, beautiful thing about having our our center, our archdiocese located there, the headquarters. I mean, that's all what about being Catholic is, right? Everybody, yeah. you know, every yeah, every background of a kind of person. Way. Archbishop, I don't want to keep you any longer. I know you're a very busy man. Uh, I would appreciate it though if you wouldn't mind closing us out with a prayer. Yeah, I'll be happy to do that. And Isaiah, just to say what a, what a pleasure it is to uh, have this opportunity to speak with you. I always will remember you know, when. Uh, I ran into you as a cashier, yeah, and you were asking me about the gospel of the week. <laughs> Here's a young man who uh, 
who's engaged. And so it's, it's nice to be able to follow up with you as yeah, well. That would be at my, uh, at Thomas liquors. I was working, I think you were popping and getting a gift. I remember you were yes, getting, it lim- was a gift. limoncello as a gift. Mm-hmm. I wrapped it up for you. Nice. Don't know if you remember that part, but, uh, oh, you, you were in a rush and I, and I was bugging you about the gospel, but I'd be happy to, happy to pray. But loving God, we thank you for the gift of this day, for this opportunity to love you and to serve you. We thank you for the, uh, the gift of uh, social media and the opportunity to um, be able to share with one another and to enter into deep discussions and to include others in those discussions as well. We ask you to bless all of the listeners of this podcast. We ask you to bless Isaiah and Marshall most particularly and help us all to uh, grow in our response to uh, the need to serve our brothers and sisters in all that we do, and may we find you in in our midst at those times. We ask this uh, through Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 Archbishop, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I'm truly a lucky citizen and a lucky Catholic to have you on this podcast. Uh, I appreciate your time so much, your candor, and really everything about you. Again, thanks again, and thanks to all those who are listening to this episode of Saint Small Talk. God bless you. God bless you too. Thank you, Archbishop. If you enjoy listening to Saint Small Talk, feel free to visit our Facebook page, Saint Small Talk, or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Saint Small Talk. That's S-A-I-N-T-S-M-A-L-L-T-A-L-K. Saint Small Talk is brought to you by Minnesota Podcasting Studios, Minnesota's premier podcasting outfit for professional and entertainment podcasts alike. Our logo design is made by Galen Rick at Mighty Fine Design, a Twin Cities-based graphic design company. Thanks, Mom and Dad, for listening.